0: Tell me what you see.
1: I see four large sheets of translucent, textured paper enclosing a space. Next to them is a long table full of small concrete blocks and steel presses. A faint voice emanates from a concrete volume. The air smells of lavender. A young woman methodically works to fill a large vase of water with pieces of paper. A shoeless man in all black moves back and forth between these elements, discussing them with passersby. Where am I? Rob Trumbore's thesis work, The Labor in Forgetting.
2: Every time a memory is recalled, it changes. Because it's being recalled in a new context, right? So the memory becomes situational. It's not the same as when you recall it now as when it was... The day after something happened and and every time it comes out it comes out in a new context and gets affected by that context so it's also a super dynamic thing that's always changing
0: welcome to what builds us a podcast that explores the ways our built environment affects our emotions experiences and day-to-day lives i'm brian
1: And I'm Chantel. And we welcome you to this final episode of this season. Woo! Woo! Big day. Big day. Big day in all of our lives. (laughs) Still okay. I'm not crying about it.
0: (laughs) Keep the tears in. Keep the tears
1: in. So this week, we are kind of going very much so outside of the box and breaking through that boundary of scale that we've talked about. And we kind of blew up last week. We're going to do it even more this week. We're going to be talking about the way that time comes into play with architecture and the built environment and the way that you experience it, which sounds kind of crazy. and Maybe something that you don't think about too much.
0: So time's something I think we all... Pay attention to every day, right? Like your alarm goes off in the morning and you check the clock for a meeting or when you're going to go to lunch. That's something we all are aware of. But that version, the kind that, it's, I mean, that's a human intervention those hours and minutes and seconds. We think there's a lot more interesting ways to talk about and think about the abstract idea of time. And that's what we want to get into today.
1: Yeah. So time is something that we experience in a lot of ways, you know. So there's, this idea, if you think about how molecules move, if you heat them up, they move faster. If you cool them down, they go slower. And then there's another phenomena of like our space and how planets move and how like our time is affected by the push and pull of other things. So then if we think about the moon and how it's orbiting around us, it's slowly moving out, which is slowing the earth's rotation down, which is making us slower. And a few years back, we even had to turn the world clock back like a part of a second or a whole second.
0: And to bring it into buildings, you can see buildings as a way to provide a visual marker of time. One way through they do that is through the creation of their shadows. You can read their shadows as they move throughout the day as, as markers of time.
1: Yeah, so there's all these visual perceptions of like how your environment is changing throughout your day that allows you to understand what time is it. We all have this like internal clock that creates this connection with the world around us. And going even further, we all have this understanding of architecture and how it's changed over time, which is why when you are asked, like, what does an old building look like? Everyone has a similar description. And when you ask what a new building looks like, everyone has a similar description.
0: Yeah, our understanding of building styles give us visual markers along our shared cultural history, our shared cultural timeline.
1: Yeah, and it's something that we all understand, and you didn't have to go to school for that. Another way to dive even deeper into this topic of time and architecture is to think about your own personal relationship with the buildings around you. So when you think about the concept of nostalgia, so if you think about a home that you grew up in or a place that you grew up in or a city that you grew up in, and the way that the buildings or your environment has changed as your life has progressed, your relationship with your memories from your childhood has changed along with those buildings, whether that's because of how they've changed, or like that you've moved, or that your memory has changed, or whether it was a good memory or a bad memory, all that kind of comes into play with your relationship with that environment. So someone that Brian and I went to school with who studied this even kind of further was a good friend of ours, Brody Walsh. So he focused his thesis around this idea of kind of exploring the idea of nostalgia and architecture and how they kind of play together. So I sat down with him and got some of his thoughts on how he approached this idea.
3: My name is Brody Walsh, I completed my master's thesis alongside Chantel and Brian in 2018. During that time I spent the year doing my thesis on how the idea of nostalgia can be translated from digital media into architecture and what that might do for the space and for the people occupying it. Nostalgia has always interested me just because, in the same way that it interests anybody, especially with my focus was initially through films the use of nostalgia in film and how it will alter the viewer's perspective of maybe a real um, non-fictional event from the past and how this the introduction of emotions will then allow people that weren't there to feel more connected to the story and or vice versa or for people to Uh, allow themselves to maybe believe a different truth, if they were there. It was during a time when my mom had recently moved from my childhood home. So I was kind of thinking a lot about whether or not I felt like, was that my home because I grew up there? Or was there some sort of essence that was capturable? And so the two ideas of making something not made for me, making that thing personal, Uh, It seemed like a good crossover. Like, everyone's past is different, so I had to find a way to make something broad enough that will feel somehow specific enough. And so it became uh, this sort of long abstraction of nostalgia. And so it became this idea of taking a person where they're standing and the direction that they're headed and then dealing with that space in between, because nostalgia is that that constant longing because you can never achieve it. You can never get there. So it's always going to seem beautiful. It's like when you have a crush on someone and then you maybe talk to them and you don't like them so much and you find out and you're like, oh, I wish it was more fun having a crush. Mm-hmm. So in nostalgia, you'll never get the chance to find that out. So it's always just perpetually uh, mythical and beautiful. And so that idea of uninhabitable space like that was utilized to try and trigger the imagination, which is also obviously a big part of nostalgia. So seeing a space that you physically cannot occupy leads you to think about how you would occupy it if you could.
1: I'm glad that we got Brody's thoughts on this podcast because it was so interesting watching his approach throughout his thesis grow with this difficult idea of bringing something that is not stagnant like time like trying to represent a process that typically exists throughout many years into a physical form that is stagnant
0: yeah and and how do you take that impression of the process over many years that impression a process of making a memory And embody it in space, in spatial characteristics, in material characteristics.
1: Yeah, even especially with a space that might not even be there anymore, like how do you approach that?
0: So I think by now we've all gotten an idea of how difficult it is to have this conversation, this really abstract idea, so we brought someone in who has done a lot of work around the idea and we wanted to ask him how he talks about it. How does he approach it with with new people.
1: So Rob Trembor is somebody that Brian and I have known for a few years now. And within the past six or seven years, he's been diving into this topic of time and architecture by bringing in the fine arts into this practice. Uh, so
2: my name's Rob Trembor. I'm an associate professor here at Wentworth. I've been teaching for over 10 years. I teach throughout the curriculum. More recently, or I'd say, over the past six or seven years, what I've been doing more and more is integrating fine art into my own courses that I teach. And two and a half years ago, I decided to go back to graduate school to get my MFA to give myself a little bit more legitimacy in that area and to have the time to be able to concentrate my own thinking and really focus in on what it is that I want to do. And really, I think through that process, a lot of my interest in the
0: topic that we're going to be talking about today sort of came, came out. I think, as, as we mentioned, we'd like to talk about the role of time and, and memory in kind of the built environment around us. And I think a good way to get into it is if you could talk about your, some of your thesis work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. In whatever way, I, I know it was a long process and, and had a lot of beautiful kind of discoveries along the way. I'll, I
2: can start with what I called it, maybe. Cool. Um, I called, in the end, the title was The Labor um, in Forgetting. The Labor and Forgetting was the title of the piece. The broader topic topic areas that I think I really started to flush out in school um, was probably best situated in a really simple sentence. Um, body and space over time was like, if you re- remember... As like a formula? A, as, a, as a statement mm-hmm. to say that uh, my interests lie in that area of body and space over time. One of the ideas, starting with body, is you can think of body as the body, meaning an abstraction or anybody's body. Or at times, I've thought about it as my body. Or you might think of it as your body. So what does that exactly mean? Um, As soon as you put my in front of body, it sort of changes pretty drastically. But what happens is as soon as you add the my part to that sentence, um, my body in space over time, it shifts to your own history in some sense. Uh, I think it starts to engage um, interrelationships that you have with people, with family, which is one piece that came out of my work was um, things that related to family. Or let's talk about space, for example. Space is also something that can be abstract or thought of in a sort of Cartesian way, so say in a, in a Mesian um, way of thinking about space as being infinite and expanding in all directions. Um, that's one way to think about space, again as, as an abstraction without any specific point um, being thought about. And the third piece in the sentence is time, which has always been a really big interest of mine, mainly because it's, it's probably the thing I understand the least of all three of those things. (laughs) Uh, And I would argue that none of us, or all of us, understand it the least. I I think that time is one of these things that we think we understand, but every time we try and explain it, we only sort of point back at it. So for me, time um, is a cyclical thing as much as it's a linear thing. It's a clock time thing as much as it is an, an idea of memory. But it's also a dimension that we as architects deal with all the time. It, it's the it's the I, I would argue it's the dimension that makes our architecture real. Right, like we can draw a plan mm-hmm. or a section or what, however we want to draw something to represent, or we can build a model. But as soon as you introduce time into that equation, it adds that fourth dimension of kind of ex, you know we're existing in it now. Mm-hmm. That time is passing. So for me, time as a topic is this kind of nebulous thing that's hard to pin down but super interesting at the same time because of that.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I think uh, where my head goes with what you just said is in relation to a lot of um, conversations that we had earlier in the season. Um, in relation to social hierarchies and authority, and the way that people relate to space, when you bring time into the equation of architecture, like what it means to someone, you right, know, it's always and changes. yeah, it's like, and like, so as time changes, buildings mean different things. So you design this thing with this intent, but then ten years from now, when someone else owns it, or when the scene around it changes, it's going to totally change meaning and have a different effect on different people.
2: Right. One of the things that you're getting at that this philosopher also gets at Bergson that I was talking about. He, um, I forget exactly how he defines it, but he has a term that he refers to this where every time a memory is recalled, it changes because it's being recalled in a new context, right? So the memory becomes situational. So And we can all think of this as memory from when we were kids, um, that it's not the same as when you recall it now as when it was the day after something that's happened. A memory of a memory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and every time it comes out, it comes out in a new context and gets affected by that context. So it's also a super dynamic thing that's always changing. And it goes to, you know, architecture at the same time does that. So you put architecture in a new context and it's gonna radically change.
0: Rob brings up a great point that your memories are dynamic. We often think of them as like perfect snapshots of the objective, 100% accurate version of the past and the spaces we've been in in the past, but they're not.
1: Yeah, I like how he talks about your memory of a space and then if you imagine yourself to be in that space again, remembering the memory of that space. It becomes like a lot more faded and depending on how you're feeling in that moment, it then alters your feeling of your memory of that space and it winds up just being like if you have a photo and you take a photo of that photo and then you take a photo of the photo of that photo it winds up becoming a lot less about the original point of the first photo and much more just an abstraction of an abstraction of an abstraction and it becomes a much more faded thing
0: yeah it becomes personal to you it exists almost more substantially inside your mind than it does in real life.
1: Yeah, and then at what point does it become not about the architecture at all, not about the space at all, but more about your feeling?
2: In the way that we, um, and one thing that's a real fascination with me is how we experience the world through our devices now, right, you were joking about iPhones, I mean, Apple watches earlier. You know, if you're at a concert or you're at a performance, it always is strange to me how someone will be viewing that performance through their phone, what they're capturing is their view through their phone, so they're in order to do that, they're missing out on the actual experience of the thing. and I think that's another weird thing for me with how people are responding to a a momentary thing. you know a, a thing that like we can talk about the long history of things, but we can also talk about like the flash, the thing that just happens right at the moment things that we might miss or things that we're trying to capture, but we're, we're missing something through the act of capturing it. Like when uh, traveling in Iceland recently and you go to a geyser on the side of the road, that's a blast of water. And everyone knows that it's going to happen every 10 or 15 minutes. And it was likely at one point long ago, you would just sit there and wait and it would happen. And then when it, once it happened, you'd walk away. What happens now is everybody sits with their phones waiting for it to happen, looking through this event through their phone. And then it happens, and as soon as it happens, the gratification is gone, and then you just move on to the next thing. So I think our, our attention span for, for the moment is, has been pretty deeply affected. And I think in contrast to thinking about long time or history, I think it's something to think about how we respond to the moment or the momentary instances of things.
0: I'm interested to hear how you talk, when you talk to people about your work mm-hmm. who aren't artists or architects or, or, uh, or kind of involved in this way of, of working and like thinking. Yeah, like your mom. <laughs> like how do you talk to your mom about your work? Because I think it's related in also the way that people talk to each other about memorials and, and mm-hmm. the history of the place that they share so I'm interested how you talk to, to
2: yeah I, I think I sometimes will do it by maybe talking about what I'm curious about or the questions I have I, th- I think ultimately I would say one thing that artists do release. I think I tr- spend my time doing is tr- I, you try and make sense of the world you're in in a very simple direct way and you can look at many, many artists, most artists, and you can in some ways you can boil it down to that, like what are they doing? Um, they're trying to make sense of the world they're in so I think part of part of my interest in artwork versus architecture is that I found myself having a harder time asking the questions I wanted to ask in the architecture I was doing so that that's sort of what brought me into. To Doing work, but so, to get back to your question, sometimes I do just think about or talk about what interests me about a place in a in a very direct, curious way to say that you know I just wonder about this place, I wonder what its history is. I think the I think when you when you try and define something too tightly, it's very hard to enter into it I think as an artist, you have to make openings and make space for people to come into your work in a way that's different than architecture. I think the, the best architecture does that too. I think the best architecture bridges into poetics and other kinds of other kinds of things. But the, the difficulty with artwork, I think, is unlike architecture where you can say, as a default, if you're talking with someone and then they're not quite getting it, you can always say that it's a kitchen for somebody or it's, you know, a post office. You can always sort of point to the thing that people know.
0: Yeah, they call architecture the art you can't escape.
2: Yeah. So it's easy. Like, you can always come around in some way to what it is that you're doing. So for your parents to understand what you're doing, it's easier. When I was in art school as an undergrad, my, my dad would say, I don't really know what he does, but I know he's good at it. And that's what he would tell his friends, you know? But yeah, that was a nice thing, but, it, but it also like, he didn't quite understand it. And I think fine arts is kind of that way too. So I think it's it's critical to be able to talk about your work. And I think yeah. one of the ways that you can do it is talking about the bigger ideas that you're working in.
0: It is jarring, but very powerful to hear Rob so eloquently describe, I think, our, most people's reality day to day that you spend so little time engaged in this present moment. You're either planning for something that's going to happen, whether it's tomorrow or next year, or it's something bad that happened in the past, even if it's just missing the bus that morning.
1: Yeah, and thinking back to episode four, where we talk about thresholds and like the power of architecture and what it can do to slow someone down. There's moments that design can have that like can force you to pause and witness something. And what that's doing is bringing you back to the present moment, you know?
0: I think if you asked a lot of people how they thought about time, they would point to history as this something that's very like set in stone and it used to happen and maybe it affects how things look right now or maybe it results in some memorial or some Mm -hmm. like specific thing that um, physical thing that's built. But in the way that you talk about it, it's much more nebulous than that, which I think is a lot more powerful and a lot more how people unconsciously understand a place.
1: Because I think like what you were saying, the way that we talk about time commonly isn't about present It's more about in relation to something that's already existed. So it's always like, yeah, this reflection on what's just happened.
2: Yeah, and and the fact, I mean, this is such a simple thing, but it always blows my mind is that you can, in your mind, you can be in multiple places at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. So the three of us are here talking and having a conversation, but I can at the same time as well as you can be recalling a memory that happened as a child, but we can still be here at the same time. So, just the fact that we can be in multiple places—at least in our minds, anyway—at this point is a pretty interesting thing because it, it, it really, I think, right? Like something in the past can quickly come to the present with and carry with it new meaning and also affect what's happening now, right?
0: That concept, the idea that by accessing a memory you can temporarily transport your mind. To another space while your body is is in the present is at the on one hand like very obvious but also kind of completely mind-blowing
1: right and it's if it's not something that totally makes sense to you a good way to think about it is what Brian and I are trying to accomplish at the beginning of every episode by describing a space to you that we want you to put yourself in so you can have this idea of what we're talking about but when you think about it right That space that you're creating in your mind doesn't actually exist. It's a place that you're putting yourself, which is a space, and it's accomplishing the same result of you understanding a place that we're trying to describe and put you in.
0: All of this brings me back so vividly to that scene in the final Harry Potter movie where Harry meets Dumbledore in the train station.
3: Professor, is this all real?
0: Or is it just happening inside my head? Of course it's happening inside your head,
2: Harry. Why should that mean that it's not real?
0: So Rob Rob chose to do a lot of his work in the town of North Adams. It's a town in the far northwest corner of Massachusetts. It's an industrial town right on the Hoosick River and has a long history of manufacturing, particularly textile manufacturing, and so it has a lot of the urban and architectural characteristics that go along with that. So while North Adams used to be this economic powerhouse, as part of its more recent history, this manufacturing sector has really declined and left behind this memory of what used to be there.
2: I went to North Adams for one reason, which was naively thinking that I wanted to find longing in North Adams. That's why I started to go to North Adams. It was a topic of mine in my artwork that I was interested in, trying to understand the sense of longing. Because I, ultimately, I think also one interest I have as a kind of higher order thinking is what makes us human. What, how are we different than animals or insects? Or, um, and our relationship with time is one of those things. And unlike other cities that have moved on from one thing to another, North Adams is simultaneously in this space between their memory of what North Adams was and what North Adams is turning into being. So the idea of, um, of what things used to be um, sort of gets at this idea of nostalgia, right? But it also, I think, brings with it ideas of time and memory and other kinds of associations that come along with that.
0: Yeah, the people who live there, their understanding of both the physical environment that is the town around them, but also their idea of who, who they are is rooted in this nostalgic mm-hmm. idea. They're, they're kind of trying to pull this past into the present in a very literal way.
2: So where I went from there was I, I spent three months just being in the place, um, the place being the town. Where, where I ended up looking was the mills. The mills are obviously the, the piece that I think have that most, that biggest connection to nostalgia. But what I ended up finding was an old, um, an old space, which was an old manufacturing space that was a cast iron foundry, the, the Hunter foundry, and it was one of the first manufacturing spaces in North Adams. And the interesting thing about this place that I found so compelling was that it was the space that made machines for the other spaces that made things. So it was sort of the meta, the meta factory. (laughs) So I got really interested in that, the idea of things um, and our attachment to things, which also ties into our memory and our, our, our desire to sort of hold on to things. But this hunter foundry that made these cast iron parts is owned by someone who still manages that space, not as a production space, but as a property that is constantly trying to be kept up. Um, Richard is his name and he's 82 years old um, and he has since he's owned it had occasions where he has gone into a backspace within the building or buildings and found someone who came back to visit who worked there as a young person so even there's a there's a lot of that people's identity are really uh, embedded in that place it's like, you know it's hard to not to feel that sense of, of identity in yeah. a place like that I mean, it may not be that you feel it unless you're looking for it, and I think part of part of me was looking for that. But I, what I found so um, compelling about that place was the this, the presence of labor, even though there wasn't the presence of people. Do you know what an empath is? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. What, what do you what what do you what does that word mean to you?
1: Tim, so I've always described myself as being like a hyper empath in a way because I much too often take on other people's emotions. And I feel like I can feel them in a way that is very overwhelming.
2: Okay, so that's what I mean about sensing labor. Okay,
1: yeah. If, so if like that you're... makes
2: sense. Is that when I'm there, I can't help but feel that right. in the way that you're just describing. Right. Okay, so in the way that artists, I think, are are mostly natural empaths, right? Mm-hmm. That they. It's part of being an artist, it's both the, the benefit and also the, the, struggle. the struggle, right? That, we, that I think we feel more than most people. You know, these, these spaces were everything. They were, they put food on people's tables and they, they occupied your day and, you know, it affected your family. There's, there's lots of things that, that carry meaning for people with these spaces that when they're gone, that meaning can go away too, which is kind of scary. Yeah, so I found this old foundry and I spent a little bit of time looking at the whole space and like the building that I ended up settling on was a space. So Cast Iron uses cast iron production uses um, a blast furnace at least back at that point where materials raw materials are fed into it at the bottom from gravity and heat you get the cast iron and then that cast iron would be then poured into molds and castings would happen and so on but the space that i became very interested in was the space where all the raw materials were stored because again going back to my interest in the making of things and the fact that this space was a space that made machines that made other things. I went back as far as I could to the very origin, which was the raw materials. And um, this particular place is made of uh, cast concrete, board formed concrete, before they had formworks that that are used to seeing buildings done with concrete now. So the walls of these cellular spaces where the materials are stored are incredibly rich with texture and memory of, their, of the labor. So what I started doing was I started doing paper casts of that, of those walls, just very in a very simple, direct way, making, bringing my own paper that I had made, going out there and doing wall castings. <coughs> like, very simply, the process would be, I would make a bunch of paper myself at my studio, and then I would bring it out there to North Adams, and I would soak it till it was wet. Um, in sheets that were about, I think, 13 by 19 in size, like 11 by 17 sort of. And I would lay them up on the wall and then I would tamp them with a soft brush to, to, in order to push the paper into the surfaces of the walls to capture as much texture as I could. And then once I would do that, I would build up an entire wall. So say I was end up doing castings that were about eight feet by 16 or seven feet long, 17 feet long, long large wall casts. And then after it dried, I'd I'd pull it off and um, have the cast. So I was making a translation between, or at least responding to the fragility of this place that exists through this memory and and, um, labor to a material property of paper, and sort of inverting the strength of the building with the fragility of the paper. Mm was sort of one material idea that I had. Um, To the point where those things became so fragile, it was very difficult to even move them around without them tearing and ripping and and getting ruined. Um, And part of my tendency was to try and keep them perfect, but I realized quickly that I couldn't. As hard as I tried, I couldn't ever keep them in any perfect condition. So it became, in a weird way, like an exercise in fragility Um, just knowing that I couldn't keep them the way that I wanted them, (laughs) which I think in some ways is corollary to a memory, Um, in some ways. But I was looking at that through a material. So what I ended up doing was creating a lot of wall castings, enough to make a room, to define a room, 10 by 12 by 8 feet high, like a little volume. And then I built that room with a very simple wood armature and then hung the paper on it. And I had my first review at the start of my summer semester. It came across to critics as something that was just more of a documentation of this space that was sort of lacking a sense that I was really after, which was this idea of um, vulnerability. So what I ended up I ended up realizing that what I had made had to be deconstructed or to a sen- in a sense. Ruined in a way or turned into something else so as much as I tried to preserve this memory of the space through the paper I knew that I had to then dismantle it and turn it into something else.
1: I like that because it reflects everything that was in the room Right, I mean what I ended up
2: realizing was I had to be the labor it had to be had to be me versus some stand-in or facsimile of a machine it had to be me so all along through this process is also um, an interest that was happening at the same time was around the work of Rainer Maria Rilke, who is a German poet that I really love. And he wrote, in and around the same time where a lot of this work was happening at the Cast Iron Foundry in the early 1900s, he wrote a series of poems that were called New Poems. And what's so interesting about these poems was it was a shift in his thinking from his earlier poetry that was very internal, sentimental, personal, to then the discovery that he had to write poetry about the world that he was in. So what he started to do is he started to find, identify things across time. So things like ruins in ancient Greece and he would write poems about these things. And he referred to them as thing poems because they were about things in the world. And this all came about when he met uh, and worked for um, Rodin, the sculptor. And Rodin, the sculptor, is the sculptor who did um, The Thinker. So I'm going to pose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Great pose. Yeah. So he, he sculpted The Thinker. And, and Rilke, as a young poet, was obsessed with how Rodin could capture the essence of things that he sculpted. So he asked Rodin one day, how do you do it? And Rodin said, you spend a lot of time looking, and then you act. So um, Rilke, then that day, as the legend has it, he went to the zoo in Paris and sat in front of a leopard cage for 12 hours and then wrote a poem about it. And that was his first thing poem. It was the first time he wrote about something outside of himself. Mm -hmm. But inevitably, a poet can't write only about something outside themselves because they see what's outside in themselves, right? Mm-hmm. So, the, so it's interesting because it's sort of trying to walk this line of it's external but really it's still coming from me. So to come back to my thesis, uh, so I, what I ended up doing was I found in the back of this old book was a first line index and I don't know a lot about poetry but it, the first line index in this book was exactly that. It is a list, not of the title of the poem, but of the first line of each poem in alphabetical order. So what I ended up doing was this production that I wanted to do in my thesis work, and the fact that I realized that I needed to be the machine, I needed to be the thing that dismantled this memory, what I ended up doing was I created, um, in a sense, like a printing press, almost, where I made letters, I cast letters out of concrete and made little like stamps of concrete and I made enough letters where I could have enough letters to compose each first line of each poem and I went one by one chronologically so I took the paper down, I cut it down so off, I, I hung this thing in its pure form surrounding this um, armature that I made and then it turned into a performance piece more than a static sculpture. So over the course of the 10-day thesis show, I dismantled this thing, cut them into my original paper size, which was 13 by 19, and then I just systematically went through, line by line, through each of the poems and printed onto the cast paper from the site that had all the residue and the memory embedded in it now, because it went from this pure paper to a dirty residue of the space, to then imposing a new idea onto this material through each one of these first lines. And what I liked about using the first lines, for me, what that had to do with was that it was it was an opening. It wasn't um, a defined thing. But to leave the poem open with just the first line gave, my, my hope was that it gave the viewer a way into the work without having to be told what it was about. So in the end, what I am ending up with, and I'm still in the process of doing this, is I'm finishing my index. And then my hope is to complete this index, archive it, and then bring it back out to North Adams.
0: Return it to the place where it came yeah. from. Where it got all its meaning from.
2: So in the end, what I made is less important than the process that I went through to make it, in a way. If that makes sense.
1: But I mean, arguably, that's a reflection of time on architecture. Like it's not about the architecture at the end of the day, like years after years pass. It's not about like that building to that area. It's about the people's connection to the history and their existence in that place.
2: Right. What are you left with?
1: Yeah.
0: So I felt really lucky to be able to go see Rob's work, the culmination of of the thesis. Uh, We brought a bunch of high school students uh, who were taking part of a course that I helped teach and it was really amazing to see them see their reactions to this work and even as people who were really just starting to dip their toes into the world of art and architecture and design, they had a meaningful experience talking to rob and seeing the artifacts that came from the work and and seeing the process that went behind it. it it was amazing
1: yeah one of the things that resonated with me so much about the whole process of his work was this idea of taking something breaking it down making art out of it and then breaking down that art and completing the cycle and putting it back to what it was and just like that whole process sort of is something that you don't really see a lot with architecture even though it is part of the grander story of like You take something, you transform it, you build something with it, and then eventually that comes down or changes into being something else, and just that whole cycle of the story that he's creating is really profound.
2: Yeah, I think our this, I think gets back to my my critique of how we think about time or our lack of understanding with it is we are far less connected to time than animals are or other things in the world are and I I think it's because we have a consciousness that these other things don't have presumably I'm not I don't know but um you know we can think about the past and we can think about the future and if you stop and think about how much time you spend in those two things other than the present moment it's pretty astounding at least for me anyway I spend far more far more time in the past or future than i do in the present
0: we've talked a lot on in previous episodes about kind of the way that you understand your body in space through like using your your physical body as a scale right to judge the size of something in some in that's a very mm-hmm. literal way i think the idea that you can kind of mo- mentally move out of the physical space you're in and Dive back into a previous space you've been in or a, a space you anticipate being in by just co- recalling a memory mm-hmm. is so powerful. Like it, it completely yeah. changes how you think about physical space when yeah. suddenly you can leave without right. leaving.
2: And it's also, most times, wildly inaccurate. Yeah. Right.
1: <laughs> Like, yeah, I've, I've had the experience
2: yeah. of, I think we all have, of, you know, these memories of when you were a kid and you were building something in the woods or whatever it might be, and you go, and in your mind, it's the biggest place. It's the craziest, like, frightening. Trees are gigantic. And then you go back, it's like this little lot, yeah. you know? There's <laughs> <laughs> like three or when four trees. Go, and, the river is now yeah. So, and Yeah. So, yeah, I think, you know, what we recall and what we choose to remember and how we frame it in our our minds is so interesting too because it's it's never really what happened. But But I think that's the beauty of architecture is that you can um, somehow, if you get all the pieces right, in the same way that I can read a poem and just burst into tears, like how does that happen? You can make that happen for somebody else. And that's a pretty remarkable thing, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? And that's, you know, I don't know, that's what I'm hoping for. (laughs)
1: Yeah, right? (laughs) That's the goal.
0: So thanks again to Rob for sitting down with us. It was a really great way to end season one.
1: Yeah, he had a really eloquent way of verbalizing these really grand concepts that we decided to blow everything up into. And I think it's a good way to end off this massive scale of time.
0: What Builds Us is brought to you by your favorite podcast going on hiatus. You build a connection with the hosts week in and week out, and the lack of their voice in your ears is so sad. But don't let the hope die out. You can always subscribe to get notified the instant they return.
1: Want to share your own gripe with life or send us some ideas for season two? You can send us an email at info.coalescedesign at gmail.com. You can see some photos of what we talked about or DM us or follow us on our Instagram at coales.design, And you can check out our website where we have a blog post about everything that we've been talking about. And you can find more stuff about Rob at coalescedesign.org.
0: What Builds Us is written and produced by us, Brian Sanford and Chantal Trombley. Huge shout out to Chantel for mixing and editing every episode. (laughs)
1: Learned all of it just now.
0: (laughs) And a big, big thanks to our friend Will Gooding for his music and his advice. All of his original music is super integral to the show and we cannot thank him enough.
1: Love you, Will. You're literally the man. (laughs) You can find more of his music at www.thorns-roses.bandcap.com or just message him and say thanks because this has been great
0: so thanks again to rob and more generally to really everyone who sat down with us for the show from the first to the last episode we really really cannot thank you enough
1: yeah brian and i started out this podcast not really knowing what it was going to turn into and it's been a lot of work but also a lot of fun and we've gained a lot of really good insight and conversations from it and we also really want to thank everybody who's listened to it shared it promoted it, helped us in any way. It's been really a wonderful experience, and we hope it leads us to a good direction and season two, hopefully. <laughs> Woo! Keep an eye out. Thanks again. Keep asking questions.
0: Oh, that's good. So, thanks again, and... and... Oh, and, like, thanks again, and until next time, keep asking questions. Yeah. So thanks again, and until next time, keep asking, <laughs> asking questions. Bye. Bye. (laughs)